2: Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Lillian Crawford. And I'm Sabina Petkova. On the show this week, a holiday goes up in blazes in a fire, and David Jenkins spoke to the film's director, Christian Peltzold. A precocious child has her independence disturbed by her father's return in Scrapper. And on Film Club, another father and daughter struggle to reconnect in Paper Moon. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome to you both, as I'm sure our kind of listeners with brilliant memories will know exactly who you are, but for those who've maybe had a lot on their mind and can't quite recall, (laughs) you guys want to introduce who you are. Lillian, who exactly are you?
3: Who am I? A huge question. Um, I am a freelance writer, Um, write for Little White Lies a lot and various other publications that we won't name. Yeah, that's mostly what I do.
2: And you technically kind of gotten the prestige of being an official film critic. You have joined our, what is it, a guild? Our, Should we call it a guild?
3: It's a, it sounds like a cult, um, which maybe it, it is. It, it, it feels that way. <laughs> but yeah, but, um, I, yes, no, I am now an official film critic according to London, which is, which is a, a nice thing to be told that one is. Well.
2: You Know it's uh, one of those jobs that I think always feels like it's uh, a slight madness and uh, not quite real. So it's very nice when people tell you, like, <laughs> no, this is a thing and this is the thing that you do and it's official.
3: Yes, absolutely. Because I always tell people that I don't actually have a job and then remember that writing film reviews is apparently a job.
2: Apparently, I mean, apparently. judging by the money, it's not much of a job. <laughs> <in mind. laughs>
0: quite. Savina, what about you? Who is it that you are? I am a freelance film writer as well. Partial academic, partial programmer too. So I moonlight as both other things. And I'm also now an official critic as of today. So it's a good day for legitimacy, I guess. That's very exciting.
2: Well, welcome, welcome. I mean, you do, I do believe you might get like an actual press badge with it, but you you get some stuff, which is pretty fun. Very excited to have the two of you join the cult that is uh, the London Critics Circle and us all kind of maybe chip away a little bit at our imposter syndrome. Um, But yeah, aside from kind of our own professional accomplishments, is there anything that you guys are particularly looking forward to when it comes to the coming months?
3: Well, I'm very excited about the Powell and Pressburger season at the BFI, which is coming later this year. That's that's very exciting. And I'm going to be doing some various talks and things around Powell and Pressburger, which is my favorite thing to talk about. So that that's all good and exciting. And I have some, I, I do a lot of the relaxed screenings. I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, relaxed screenings at the BFI for neurodivergent people. So I've started writing a series of pieces about why we have these screenings and who they're for and how neurodivergent people might respond to films differently to neurotypical people, including myself. So hopefully we've got some more of those coming up as well and potentially something Palin and Pressburg related. We will see. I don't want to promise anything yet, but um, that's what I'm mostly sort of looking at at the moment.
2: Oh, I really love that you're doing that. I mean, a part of a lot of neurodivergence is that you do connect very intensely to art. And so like actually providing people the spaces to like do so, I think it's just such wonderful work, Lillian. I appreciate you and everything you do very much.
3: Thank you very much. I'm glad it's appreciated.
2: <laughs> and Savita, what about you? What have you uh, both looking forward to in the coming months? I mean, we, we could be smug and, and just talk about how we're all going to be on the Venice Canal soon.
0: But <laughs> Yeah, it's that time of the year again, especially after I missed last year's Venice. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to return to the Lido again and watch the new Lanthimos film as a huge Lanthimos head. I... Cannot wait for also the film's official release, but also in September, it's the month that is going to be quite important for me personally, as I'm co-curating my first big thing at the Barbican, which is spotlighting a very much unknown filmmaker from the 60s onwards, the first Bulgarian female filmmaker, Binka Zelaskova. So we're doing three screenings at the Barbican of three films, two restoration premieres and one non-restoration premiere so yeah if anyone wants to join i promise you'll love the films they're just absolutely great oh that sounds absolutely incredible i mean what like what
2: is it that's kind of like distinct about her work and why was she overlooked this sounds like a very interesting
0: yeah her, her films were banned actually for 30 years uh they enjoyed maybe a couple of days of release and then they were banned by the socialist regime Um, and her work was impeded year after year and only now she's getting some recognition with retrospectives in in Greece and in Paris and hopefully, yeah, this one in London will help us kind of raise awareness and do more restorations of her films because they are in pretty dire condition. So it's, uh, yeah, working with the archive for the first time for me has been super exciting.
2: incredible. So so three films you mentioned. Sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to keep pushing this because I'm so. <laughs> please, please, please just I'm kind happy of like to. literally like just wave the flag for just like, this is what I'm super into. Like Bulgarian lost female filmmakers who have were banned by their exactly. What are the kind of the films that you've, uh, have for this season at the Barbican?
0: Like what, what is it that you're going to be screening? So one of them is a uh, satire kind of a surrealist drama that is quite funny as well. Uh, the other one is a, spy thriller actually, um super beautiful. Um think Antonioni style. And the third one is a more playful comedy about a love triangle. So it's quite varied, showcases different stages of her career. And two of them are black and white, one of them is colour and tickets are on sale at the Barbican website now. I honestly
2: feel like you must be lying to me because it's, this is just ticking every box that like, you're just
0: like you know <laughs> it's it's just the good like a con
2: artist comes along and it's just like this is too good to be true okay i'm i will see you there <laughs> please so please come, come i will be so happy to see you both there
3: oh I'll definitely be there <laughs> sounds amazing
2: but yeah we should get onto one of the non-band films that is actually being allowed to be released into cinemas this week it's a fire Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member, who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. In a holiday home in the Baltic Sea in a hot, dry summer, four young people meet. There is a forest fire, and slowly but unnoticeably, they are enclosed in the walls of flame. Trapped, they get closer, and then desire, love, sex, all overtakes them. First, though, Little White Lies editor David Jenkins spoke to Christian Petzold about his latest film.
1: Okay then. Well, um, thank thank you, Christian, uh, uh, for speaking to me. I would love to know. Like, I think one of the one of the sort of, I guess, a kind of comic highlight of the film is the scene where he's going through the text within this novel, Club Sandwich, with the editor. And could you talk to me a bit about how much of Club Sandwich did you write? I mean, it's so, I've read so many novels like that and <laughs> had to kind of give up quite soon. But like, the the text for the novel is so perfectly written i'd love to just l- know how you kind of a- approach that
4: yeah you know it's, it's very hard to write a bad novel yeah which is not a caricature of a novel yeah you you must write a novel and you must feel that the author of this novel believes in this shit in the same moment <laughs> yeah? and this is very very hard yeah and so i it costs me one week all the others writing of the script was very fast and must say i can write script very fast yeah so one week two weeks then i have the structure uh, and so but but this shit yeah it was uh, this novel I, I have no idea yeah? I, i'm walking through berlin and, and like in the time when i was 26 yeah? it was a totally regressive situation for me <laughs> and then i have the idea to take a fantastic novel i love so much and rewrite it as a bad novel a little bit like <laughs> I, I, what i've done with Edgar <laughs> Ulmer's d when yeah. I make Cuba <laughs> Libre. A little bit like this. Yeah? So, And then I take a, a novel by Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah? It, uh, it, the German title is 10 Years, yeah? also 10 years, 10 years. And uh, it's about a, a man uh, from uh, from New York who's coming back to New York uh, after 10 years. And he wants to go back into the old times of orgiastic parties, yeah? fantastic girls. But everybody he meets, has a family now, is not interested in Orgus, and he knows he's the loneliest person in the world. And this I love I love this novel. And so I took this novel and rewrite it in a, in a novel where uh for, for Berlin today with this all these bad literature here, this this uh, ego literature, uh, uh, as if their boring life, yeah, uh, when they have written it down, it was it's great, a fantastic life, it's cynical, they're talking about the ordinary people like uh, their shit. Uh, I I want to see your naked breasts and the sweat between your th- the thighs and, and, and all this shit. And uh, so this and then I have written it down and I, uh, it, it was good. It has it, it has a form. Yeah. So mm-hmm. because I have read it again and again, it started to infect me. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And when mm-hmm. the actors during the rehearsal, especially the guy who's my, one of my best friends, the editor, he's, he he read it and. All the other actors are laughing about. Yeah. yeah. I was a little bit. I would, was. I was really hurt. And as I, I said, the sentence. It's it's not so bad. Yeah? I'm sorry, it's not <laughs> bad. And they start really laughing. And I know in this moment I was. I uh, I was free. Cuba Libre is dead. No, yeah? I know okay. that.
1: <laughs> That's a wonderful story. I, I would love to also note, like one of the aspects that I took from the film as well, like I think it's maybe a, a, quite a contemporary thing and perhaps it's kind of something that's specific to the UK. But in the UK at the moment, there is the government in the UK are, I guess, waging a war against academia and in particular arts and humanities. Like they kind of want their sort of manipulating things and budgets to sort of stop young people kids going and doing you know literature and filmmaking and you know classics and things like that because they don't see them as as valuable you know mm-hmm. and and they're not going to get a job at the end of it and i i kind of love this idea of paula beer's character as this slumming academic and i wondered if there is any kind of wider commentary on on the state of academia in germany is like that this kind of this brilliant mind has been kind of, you know, left out to dry. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, we,
4: have, this, we have, I have the same experience in Germany too. I think the reaction of all the people who want to be artists or artists or intellectuals or people from the acad- academies and universities, their reaction is much worse, worse than the... Because now they want to make art you can use, yeah, it's journalistic art. Yeah, you, you they make movies with a subject. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's it's is as if the cinema is just a medium and not something of itself. Yeah, and this uh, I talk so much with uh, Paula Bear because she loved in her character that she is not someone like this. She's selling ice cream. She's working in a hotel. She never suffer. She is independent. She is a subject. Yeah. And she gives a shit yeah, to all these. Uh, uh, you, you and she's writing about Heinrich Heine and about uh, something from the eighties. Uh, Signifikat, signifikant, sous Lacan. Yeah, this is everything is inside. This is totally dead in Germany now because we. We need an we need art. You can you can follow an idea. You we we have to make movies about. I said two years ago, about two years ago about lemon trees between Gaza and Israel, and yeah, there is a Palestinian boy and an Israel girl, and they met there at the lemon tree and uh, so something like that. This is not this is totally shit. Yeah? And so <laughs> I, so we we talked about about art. Yeah? We talked about climate catastrophe we talked about that we have a backlash backlash everywhere in britain in france in germany uh, a backlash to traditions to, to an ordinary life which never exists but they think about uh, and um, we don't want to have all these queer things and uh, uh yeah uh, complicated things we want to we want to have clear structures and yesterday when i've seen a, a, a movie with my with my wife because she can't go to the cinemas because she's editing and she wants to sit at the uh, living room. Uh, I like to sit beside her in the living room. Huh? We saw Pursued, a movie by Raoul Walsh. You think it's very simple movie. There's one Robert Mitchum, and he's not. He's adopted, yeah? so in the, in a family. But it's so complex, yeah? and all these people who are uh, say we need simple for, uh, simple forms, they they destroy everything. But these movies are simple, but so so deep, and uh, we, are, we are talked more than half an hour after uh, the structure of the movie. And it's the same what Paula Baer said about Heinrich Heine: the subjects are inside the structure yeah it's the, the 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 whole building the architecture of this movie is also the sense of the movie yeah and it's and you can feel it it's it's fantastic so it was a great evening yesterday yeah
1: yeah well i mean on that note it, i i think it was like a day or two ago i was i was reading uh, an article on on variety Mm-hmm. about there are, there are certain producers now who when they when they kind of give notes back on films what one of the things they're thinking of is about uh, the fact that a viewer will be watching the film while also looking at another screen yeah. and so they they're actually trying to kind of make the films so they operate on that dual level, which is terrifying, but the, but I think goes back to what you're saying about you know I think you know the, the 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 sort of cinema of classic Hollywood does you know it's rare to see a kind of even even a kind of you know quickie B movie that doesn't have some kind of evanescent richness or depth to it. <laughs> you you make is not so know, common. Uh,
4: you know, in Germany, we have no cinema in our t- uh, public television anymore. They destroyed it totally. They never. There, there is no member of our public uh, uh, television, and this our public television is rich, is richer than the BBC. Yeah? We have eight uh, billions a year, yeah? but they never go to Cannes anymore or to Venice because they don't want to buy movies. We don't, we don't need movies, so we have so many production of their own, and these are really worse, bad productions. Yeah? And but so they have, there is no. There is no neighborhood to the cinema anymore because if you have seen, if you would see a movie like this Irish movie, The Quiet Girl, they they never bought they they never bought it. But if you see this movie in a German television channel, all the German shit productions uh, would feel ashamed about this. So, but they put it (laughs) they put it off. We don't we don't need it anymore because because the journalists Uh, and. uh, the journalists are now the, the people who make the program. They are the curators. Yeah? And they are looking for themes, subjects. Yeah, We can discuss later. We, they make a movie and after you have a talk show about the subject of, of the movie. Yeah, And in this talk show, the actors of the movie are sitting and they are talking about the concentration camps, for example. But what, what is their experience of the concentration camps? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah? So this is a problem.
1: Thank you so much. That was, that was brilliant. It's always uh, a real joy talking to you.
4: Yeah, yeah thank you.
2: So Lillian is kind of big and splashy as that sounds in certain ways that these people are kind of trapped in like this inferno. Um, <laughs> this is very much a sort of character study about the kind of dynamics between these, these few people. I mean, how would you describe what it is that's going on between them?
3: Mm, well, I certainly, yeah, as you say, I wouldn't ca- characterize this as a sort of towering inferno, sort of forest fire epic, that is very much not what a fire is. I, I suppose the best way to to describe a Christian Petzold film is is sort of as a Christian Petzold film. They're also extraordinary and unique and i i I think i the first first of his films that i saw was was phoenix um with nina huss which is one of my absolute favorite films and if people haven't seen it and or see a fire and want to see more that's definitely the one the one i'd sort of mostly recommend but he's been working with um the actress paula beer for a few years now in films transit and undine which are two absolutely gorgeous films and and this one is sort of very much following in similar vein to those last those last couple of films that we have this sort of the there's something sort of encroaching on the characters that that is going to or threatens to to pull them apart in some way but ultimately forces them together and then ends in most devastating fashion and i end up in pieces by the end of his films and i think that this one is really really special it's very similar i suppose the f- the filmmaker that it most reminded me of is erma um particularly um the green ray which is another film which i think we has been talked about in this podcast quite a lot and it's just watching these these people having these conversations and as you said sort of how they come together is is so beautiful and so deftly played which given that we are in a summer uh, that has been taken over by two very huge um and very loud blockbusters i found it incredibly peaceful and enjoyable to 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 be able to watch a film that wasn't sort <laughs> of making my head hurt
2: yeah true um not that i will disparage barbenheimer but, um, <laughs> it is a i wasn't even nice... going to
3: mention the, the the names of those two films
2: <laughs> well it's a it's a nice change of pace i mean mm. Savita, so, for you uh were you did you come into this as a fan of christian Petzold? did you have like a expectations as to what this film would be
0: Oh, massively so. I was actually thinking about how great that it it is that the film is released both in the UK and US in the summer, because it is genuinely a summer film. And the first time I saw it was in dark, snowy Berlin, (laughs) back in February. And it provided me with such hope uh, for... Hope for Love and Hope for the Summer back then. So it's really good to re-actualize that now properly. It's very fitting and I'm very happy that they managed to get such a release slot for it. And yeah, as a massive, massive Christian Petzold fan and Paula Bear fan, I'm extremely happy to see the film being received so well and being talked about. And because Undine was... Probably my favorite film ever. <laughs> so unfortunately, was muffled by the pandemic and didn't get the attention that I think it deserved. So in a way, A Fire is um, hopefully going to resuscitate that passion that I think is there for, for Petzold's new work. And he's, he's been working for a long time and has been historically important for new German cinema. But I find such freshness in his latest work that is almost unmatched, I think, um, in European altruism today. He really pushes things and does it so simplistically. You know, his films are not complicated. They're actually quite simple, especially visually so. But he does this magic that I'm really looking forward to dwelling in in our conversation again. I mean, there's certainly this particular
2: magic that he pulls out of um, Paula Beer. I find myself slight, struck slightly dumb by this and kind of relying on you, Lillian, to articulate what it is. Because he's sort of, it's a sort of subversion of the male gaze. It's a sort of, um, it's, there's a real um, spark to her. There's a mystery. There's an unknowability to her. But it also, it doesn't feel like some sort of, narrative tool. I don't even know how to articulate it, but like, yes, all of these things sort of come together in like the tiniest Venn diagram into (laughs) of six loops with like a little perfect center.
3: Yeah. I mean, the reason why I mentioned Romare so quickly is because I think with all of Petzold's films, I immediately feel like I'm watching a film which wasn't made now. It feels like something that belongs to a previous era. Uh, I mean, Phoenix is very much a film that sort of is taking nods from Hitchcock's Vertigo and Transit has a lot in common with Casablanca and 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 Dean is sort of playing with earlier forms of cinema as well. And I think I think that that's what, what what goes on here. And it's sort of it's almost like we're sort of taken out of the modern world. I and mean, this is set, as you said, in this um, in a holiday home on the Baltic Sea. So it's it's taking us away from from modern society and really just seeing how the engagements of this, these kinds of people play out. Of course, P- perhaps works with Franz Zagowski a lot, and um, the protagonist here, the male lead, is um, Thomas Schubert, who's rather different um, and looks looks very different. Um, I, I suppose he has a different kind of persona. He's not very likable, and I think that's the thing that immediately struck me and sort of concerned me, starting to watch this film, is that here his character Leon is 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 not. He's he's um, he's writing a novel which is called Club Sandwich, which leads to probably the best line reading in a film for years. I mean, I, when, uh, is sort of d- dismissive of the, of this, of this, of this book that he he's writing, what it sounds like. And it sounds like a sort of cross between like, um, David Foster Wallace and Thomas P- and that, that kind of uh, novel writing. Um, I and her, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and her sort of, that's how I interpreted it anyway. Um, I suppose it's open in that respect, but he, his sort of self-image is so different to what what she sees. And I think that the way that Portebert's character, um, Naja, she sort of strips that down is just so compelling and so beautiful. And it's done in such a slow, meditative fashion um, that, that, as I say, isn't something that we get treated to so, so much anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very interesting thing because, like, writers are so often protagonists in films. And I guess that's because writers like want to write about what they know. So even when they're writing movies, it's like it makes sense to make a central person a writer and link to their lived experience. But to me, this felt like, I don't know, to you, like there was something about the sort of self loathing and insecurity of this man that didn't go too far. It felt very, I'm sure he's not likable. I mean, whatever that means, that's normally a tool to kind of use against female protagonists. But <laughs> but I've, I found him deeply compelling.
0: Yeah. And I think something that Petzold is really good at is distributing the protagonist's power between two characters as in we're not sure who is actually the protagonist because there's this game that's almost going on. We think that Leon is the protagonist, but it seems like Nadia is his is the protagonist in his personal story. So there's this layering of protagonists and I think that was similar in in Undine because she was the protagonist in the film, but actually Franz Rogowski's character work was her protagonist and everything revolves around that and I think they they feed off each other super super well um even if the film is mostly built on their snappy comments and disdain on Leon's side and Nadia's completely unperturbed shiny presence you know there's this quite difficult to pinpoint their relationship because we witness it establishing itself more and more and yet we can't tell what's going on between them and i think that's that's how petrol works with actors in a in a very Free-flowing, intuitive way, so they create a mold of two characters together that that each one becomes stronger in counterpoint to the other.
2: Um, I, I don't mean to sound too glib, but yes, Nadia has what I believe the kids call main character
0: energy. <laughs> <laughs> she does, she does because she gets the work done. She she has she she has a job. She goes back. She cooks. She cleans. She fucks. All these things, they, they, she has a going for her. Whereas Leon, poor guy, like he always says, I need to work, I need to work. But he never does. He just keeps falling asleep, which is something that I think all sometimes can relate to. But um, definitely not much main character energy on his part, however much he wants it to be. Lillian, for you, does that at all work to its kind of detriment? I
2: mean, we've kind of got this like ensemble of people.
0: I would argue
2: that like if there was anything that was unconvincing about the film it's that they would hang out
3: well i mean i suppose there's not really much option <laughs> um, i think we've yeah. probably all found ourselves in situations where we we end up sort of being forced to socialize with people that we would not typically uh, spend time with and i think that that's the beauty of uh, fil- films of that our sort of relationship create... sorry <laughs> really hilarious very funny uh not at all <laughs> but um they you know like that's how Romare's films function that is sort of people forced into into a situation where as i say they are cut off from urban society and they um are forced to interact in these ways and i think i think that's it's a good thing for leon and i think i i i really love films that are about sort of a very uh, so someone who's quite curmudgeonly and set in their ways and then they sort of need someone to, to tear that down I, sup- I suppose and it, um, that that's a very old form of narrative but it's one that works very beautifully here and it is such a gorgeous film we really must talk about how, what this film looks like, it's just this red dress that Nadia wears is, is absolutely stunning and, and is very much a motif that Pet has used in, in, in all of his films. I think I get the impression, yeah, as as we've sort of, I mentioned Vertigo and Petzold's interest in Nina Hurst and how she's sort of created almost in in Phoenix, and then how his last three films have really been about ways of looking at Paula Bear in in many ways, which is which is certainly something that many great directors have have done with their with their leading actresses, and I think it works incredibly beautifully in this film.
2: Well, I do just want to kind of do a, a, a kind of screen share and watch this both of you because I, I, I'm i I'm so enjoying kind of, yes, luxuriating in, in all that Petzl has given us. That probably wouldn't be very interesting to listeners. So, <laughs> so you know, is that before we kind of move on to the next
0: film, is there anything that you'd like to say? Any final thoughts on A Fire? There are no final thoughts on A Fire. A Fire is a film that will live forever in your heart and... <laughs> it will, it will make you see love in a new way. It will make you cry. It will make you laugh. It is Petzl. It's probably by far funniest film. And it's, uh, I think it is born out of love and it signifies at least for me, the, the possibility of change and transformation through love. What, What Lillian said is like a very straightforward narrative technique. I think it Requires political and ethical significance in, in the way that's what portrays love here as a transformative force. So yeah, best movie of the year.
2: <laughs> I agree. Wow,
0: well, that's a high praise indeed for not a
2: time of the year necessarily where people would assume the best movie of the year was coming out.
0: Mark um, my but- words.
2: <laughs> so Lillian, do you want to go with your scores first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll I'll say in anticipation at a four, as as much as I've adored all of Petzold's films. I I don't know. I th- I think I think s- s- certain cinema fatigue had been setting in. So, um, but yeah, enjoyment is is definitely a five for me. I, I find films like this just so rich and compelling, and um, there's so much to talk about. We I mean, we've barely scratched the surface of how to how to interpret this film. And I, th- I think that, as Savina said, it's perfect for this film to be in the summer. Um, and hopefully, the weather's getting be- better at this end of August as well, so people-, people will be able to come out into the sunshine and and reflect on it um, in that way. Um, and in-, in retrospect, this is definitely a five, pr- without doubt, the best film I've seen this year. We still have a lot of year left, but I, I would I would I would be surprised if anything topped it for me.
2: Wow. Um, I'm, as well as being interviewed on this, I, I'm hoping Christian is listening. <laughs> what, what a lovely compliment to receive. Um, Sabina,
0: what about you? What are your scores? Well, I'm not going to be too different. Actually, I'm going to say exactly the same. <laughs> for me, it was a foreign anticipation because I adore Undina so, so much that I was I, it was difficult for me to conceive something that could actually top it. But um, I believed in, in Christian and he did not disappoint Delivered a five in enjoyment, as I said, it was great watching this film with a with an audience, the laughs, and also the the, the beauty of sharing Paul the Bear, <laughs> space and presence. And in retrospect, yeah, still it's it's a five for me for this year so far. I really, haven't seen anything that could top it yet. Oh,
2: I think I'm going to go fours, four, four. Not because I mean, I I, I... I will have to rewatch it and I think that that easily could give it a boost but it's very strange I suppose it's because like the five is such a difficult score to give and like to me my I still loved it and that tiny bit more but arguably people could make more than one five star film so I'll, I'll double check I'll go and, <laughs> and um well, you, yes, you know how I frivolous listen. I
3: am with fives so <laughs> that's probably what it is
2: your fives and your ones yeah so it's about- just it's a,
3: everything is just good or bad
2: <laughs> meanwhile i am uh, i am a 3.5 most things are basically fine person. <laughs> but yeah let's move on to the next film see if that is a one of five or basically fine it's scrapper
0: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
2: Living alone in her flat, 12-year-old Georgie must confront a reality where her estranged father, Jason, shows up from nowhere. Uninterested in the sudden new parental figure, she remains stubbornly resistant to his efforts. As they both adjust to their new circumstances, Georgie and Jason soon find that they have a lot of growing up to do. So, Savina, this was one of the kind of Sundance darlings. It won, like, very good awards there. And I would say it was an excellent year in terms of British female directorial debuts, and this was just one of them.
0: Um, Do you think that Scrapper lived up to the hype? I was excited to see it, definitely. And it was very enjoyable to watch. Even if I have to say I am not that big on children-led films, in a way, I just found myself much more difficult to convince by to be convinced by child children led films for some reason and I'm still interrogating that uh, occasionally with my therapist as well (laughs) so (laughs) just wonder why why that reason is there um, and what the reason is but uh, overall yes I, I did find it enjoyable I thought it lived up to the hype partially I think in a way it didn't stay with me for too long after I saw it and I'm not rushing to rewatch it again, even if there was something that captures captures this particular moment in British cinema and there's something fresh about it. Overall, yeah, I was maybe a bit disappointed. What about you guys? I'm curious to know if I'm like the odd one out.
2: Uh, I, I have to say I really liked it a lot. And beyond just like children-led films, I personally do not like coming-of-age stories. I, I find them very, very tedious and overdone. And I also kind of look back on my own life and don't feel that like that was of great enough significance that like cinema keeps revisiting it time and time again. And and I have to say, I, I love the kind of whimsy of this. I found, I, I really was quite charmed by it. Whilst on paper, it's not really my sort of thing. Lillian, my guess would you less so? I mean, I, I find it hard to predict with you, but- this feels like not a Lillian film.
3: Sadly, no. And I, I wish it had been. You, you said you've used the word whimsy. I keep seeing the word cute used a lot to describe this film. I think it's very saccharine. And that's, it doesn't quite work with, with the theme and the style that Charlotte Regan's trying to go for. And I think that she's working in a mode of a very well-trodden genre of British cinema, of, of sort of coming out of the, uh, ki- kitchen sink dramas of the post-war period into the 60s and films that people like andrea arnold in particular has done a i think a better job of, of making even when she was sort of starting out films like fish tank and i don't know i just maybe it's because i don't want i think it's very harsh to be critical of of child actors um and i think that it's something that we can describe in in the in the the general sense, um, I have an issue with children being forced to act in films. Well, not forced, but children, child actors in general. Anyway,
2: I mean, a lot of them forced. I mean, we don't need to kind of flip around it. This is this is an area that needs a lot of scrutiny.
3: Well, exa- exactly. I mean, the the ex- the extent to which a child can consent to be in a film is uh, you know questionable. And she's just given she's given so much to do. She's massively. This this character Georgie, she's so overwritten. She's given a lot of. I mean, I watched this film on my own, so I didn't watch it with an audience. But I could, I could, I really sensed very clearly at what points Lola Campbell was being given stuff to say that would make an adult audience laugh, and I could feel that sort of plodding along the whole way through. I didn't really believe at any point that I was watching a real child delivering the, this dialogue. It just doesn't feel like something that a child. Would actually say so. I, I found its lack of sincerity very difficult to engage with, and I'm not convinced that Harris Dickinson does does a great job of sort of as a foil to that and as as, as, a, as a supporter of that. That being said, the, the the most charming moments in the film the the real. The real moments are actually the scenes where they don't say anything at all. And they have these moments between the two of them, particularly at the end of the film, when when they they sort of there there are looks between them, which are really the the strongest aspect of this film, I would say, rather than the script. it's it's also just, it doesn't really have any consistency to it. The visual style is, is, is pretty messy. There's this device with using sort of smaller aspect ratio interview shots with um, some really, really, truly dreadful acting, which which I didn't really see the point of and punctuated the flow of the film that, just felt like they were there to to sort of stretch it out to eighty four minutes. I mean, this is a very short film, and and Charlotte Regan is a very good short film director, and I think that she's may, maybe struggling a bit to to work with the feature form in this case. Um, I think she's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot to, to like here, but it's not. It very much feels like a first feature in in ways that I use disparagingly, rather than in a positive sense. I think. Um, So yeah, I I found it quite a difficult film to engage
2: with. I think this film might be a bit kind of like sitting next to someone in a dinner party or perhaps in a Baltic summer home where (laughs) there are blazers. But like, you're you're either vibing, you're either, (laughs) there's either chemistry, you're either charmed or you're not. And once you've kind of gotten into a position of like, not being caught up in its like quirky little personality. I can see, whilst I was, I can see how then it just falls apart.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think this is what the film lives or dies by, is just how much you're willing to be charmed by Lola Campbell and her performance in this film, which I'm sure for a lot of people will we'll, we'll do that. Um, it's just not something that I personally could, could engage with.
2: Like, Savina, where would you put yourself on the side of this um, war that has started between Lilian? and I? Charmed or not charmed by Lola Campbell?
0: <laughs> Initially charmed, definitely. But as Lillian was speaking, I was kind of interrogating what my problem with this film and children-led films is. And was thinking that maybe it has to do with point of view, because it does feel like... A lot of Campo has been set up to say things that a child would not probably say in a way. I don't know. It seemed less believable and more tailored to a different kind of audience, as Lynn well mentioned. That's that's the feeling that I had and that distanced me from the character. And I've been thinking a lot about point of view, children's point of view specifically, in coming-of-age films with, with regards to Afterson. I've been dissecting this film a lot lately for some reason. And, um, it's such a fine line between being faithful to, to a life that is not yours, to a life that is not remembered as a childhood. It's not like, here I am as an adult and I'm sitting down to write the script from the point of view as a child... But I know that I'm adult. So there's a lot of negotiation that has to uh, that has to go on, I think, to to make a character believable. And I'm not sure that that this film covered that for me at least. So it was kind of alienating, even if I found myself laughing and, you know, admiring the snappiness of her comments and the way that she could confront someone who is much more passive, like Harris Dickinson's character. It felt empowering, but also it felt like I was being robbed from the spontaneity of their encounter. So not that charmed in the end.
2: It is one of those weird things where I think people expect a level of like combat, but like I take on both of what you guys have said, even though I was delighted by it.
0: <gasps> that scene of the train platform, that was probably my favorite scene. Um, this kind of playfulness and it felt as spontaneous as possible as negotiating their dynamics without actually overthinking it or intellectualizing it. That was the kind of thing that I wanted to see more of, definitely.
2: Yeah, yeah that's a beautifully put. I mean, I, for one, am very excited to see what Charlotte Reagan does next. And this very exciting new generation of you, like her, Raina Miller, Charlotte Wells, Nida Manzur, like it does feel that we are in quite an exciting time in terms of a generation of new filmmakers emerging, and I, I will be very excited to see what Charlotte Reagan um, does next. But um, so, Lillian, please don't break my heart. But what are you going to give Scrapper in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Well,
3: it, yeah, it's it's good to sort of mention the, this sort of. I suppose class of filmmakers who who are who are making these debut features because I mean it's the same with After Sun I suppose in in that they're um, they're almost borrowing too much from from other filmmakers who came before them at this point and they haven't quite found their voices yet and we shouldn't put too much pressure on them to do so I mean like applauding After Sun to the extent that we did can kind of ruin it so I think I think it's important to to say very good Charlotte Regan but uh, <laughs> it's it it might not be there yet so yeah anticipation I I, I would say probably a, a, a three for, for that reason but then um enjoyment and and in retrospect i'm gonna put a, a twos this was uh not not a particularly engaged film for me but i i think i think that there 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 were glimmers of, of promise that i'll look forward to but um as i said i, th- I think if you if you're willing to be charmed by the campbell then then it will be uh you'll have a much better time with it than than perhaps i did
0: very fair uh savina what about you i think i'll give it a kind of predictable even score a three three threes would be for me I think that's that's fair in a fair way to engage with what the film gave me how much I enjoyed it and that it's kind of okay but very much also looking forward to what she does next because it's a strong promise but I would like her to to lean more into the intuitive side of things
2: Yes. No, it does in some ways feel a bit kind of unfair when we're talking about a Christian Petzold, like a master filmmaker who's like been honing his craft over decades versus, you know, like a kind of quirky little indie debut. But yeah, I think I've probably three in anticipation because I don't really, I'm not a coming of age person. Uh, four in enjoyment. And then because I'm that kind of critic, 3.5. Most films are basically good. And yeah, that's where I landed with this one. But also I would be very excited to see what Lola Campbell does next. I knew she, this was her like first role. I thought she was absolutely delightful. And if as Lillian says, she's not being coerced into acting, (laughs) it would be very nice to see her kind of explore her abilities further. Next up, it's Film Club. In Paper Moon, real life father and daughter Brian and Tatum O'Neill team up a slick con artists, Moses Prey, and Addie Loggins in nineteen thirties, Kansas. When Moses unexpectedly saddled with a nine year old Addie to deliver to relatives in Missouri after the death of her mother, he attempts to dupe her out of her money and is forced to take her on as a partner. So Lillian, I know you were absolutely delighted that the film club's subject would be Paper Moon. What is it that you love about this film?
3: Um well, I suppose <laughs> this goes back on what I said about child actors. I I, I suppose I, I maybe I apply a slightly different framework to when I watch uh, older films to, to when I watch contemporary ones. But um Tatum O'Neill's performance in this film is for me perhaps the greatest child performance ever. Um along alongside bi- Bicycle Thieves, perhaps the other one. But she's just so extraordinary in this film and her interactions with with um her father Ryan O'Neill are just so supremely delightful um i love peter bogdanovich he's one of my favorite directors and when he died at the start of last year i revisited a lot of his films and going back to paper moon is just always such such a delight um i love the way that they interact with each other and what i said about sort of ha- the way harris dickinson and Lola campbell interact when they have moments of silence between them is just the whole way through this film for me um the Way that they they interact with each other is as good as any sort of screwball pairing, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's um, it's just a really delightful film.
2: Savina, for you, were you able to kind of get past your? Um, I don't want to make you sound like you hate children, <laughs> but like you're just
0: like child protagonists. <laughs> my 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 difficulties that are now known and out in the world. It's a struggle. But uh, no, I think this film was really, really a delight for me to watch as well. It was the first Odanovich film that I saw. So I came into this very brand new, fresh. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought that I wasn't expecting to be surprised for some reason. But I was super, super surprised. It was such a rewarding watch. And frankly, I'm looking forward to rewatching it already which is, yeah, I think it says a lot already.
2: Yeah, it does feel, I mean, like Tatum O'Neal, famously the youngest ever actress to win an Academy Award or an Oscar for, for acting. And often when that sort of thing happens, you kind of assume that it's just the awards body trying to be cute. Sure. In this case, I, I really do think it's earned. <clears throat> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, she she performs as an adult i mean we see this in in her her character and the things she does i mean like it's absolutely unthinkable to imagine a sort of a child smoking in, in bed and, and sort of um the the way that she does in this film which i just think is absolutely incredible <laughs> the way that most most responds to that and just her sort of, the way that she's developing a sense through this film and through the journey that she goes on, because this is a sort of road movie of a fashion, that, that she's really coming to terms with how she's perceived. And I think it's really beautifully captured how a child's sort of sense of... Of self-image and gender presentation is something that's really explored in this film, and the way that she's sort of developing a sense of self, I suppose, is is really incredible. And and for a child who's probably going through that experience herself, um, to to have to sort of navigate this material that that she's given is is um, is really quite quite astonishing. And as I say, something that I can't really imagine, I don't know, being done in in quite the same way before or since
2: i mean it's also just strikingly beautiful in a way that makes you kind of want to do wall collages based on like every frame i feel like the name paper moon is somehow also a very like beautiful evocative image and like that fully plays out in every sort of
0: frame yeah absolutely especially that scene, the way that the scene is composed of of Abadi smoking, with her being fully in the foreground and then him being in the background. And yet the deep focus still encompasses them both. There's something so classical about this composition that is also super, super exciting and controversial because she is smoking and there's smoke (laughs) in the the frame. I I think that's one of the images that is going to stay with me for a long time. Because it is, it kind of flirts with something and is saying something very serious about their dynamic without actually saying anything out in the open. Uh, Just composition is a super major part of of this film in, in not a protruding way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an impermanence
2: to it, isn't there? There's kind of like that smoky sort of like this is a moment, this is something that we're capturing in this thing, but there's there's no real sense that whatever it is that they're building, whatever connection there is, that this is some this is like a foundation that truly is going to like form their lives. And I suppose it's like that liminal sense of memory as the smoke kind of dissipates. Of like this may be for Addie something that kind of defines her but this this is not going to be a framework i guess so i'm trying i'm over therapized guys (laughs) No, that was beautiful
0: that was absolutely beautiful
2: but you know what i mean in terms of like there is that feeling of like the cigarette smoke that stains your clothes and like your fingers and like feels so intense for a time but ultimately will come to naught. and as a result watching this feels like somebody revisiting a formative memory rather than like the most important thing in their life or like what's what actually changed their lives even though it's kind of left up a little bit ambiguously like she she feels transformed in a way more that is of memory than of present if that makes sense
3: yeah it really does um i think that's a really beautiful and evocative way of of talking about it I, I suppose the reason why this has been chosen as film club is, is, is a counterpart to, to to Scrapper. And I suppose what I was saying about Scrapper being this very sort of saccharine and sentimental, but this, this Paper Moon has no sentimentality. There is nothing sentimental about her childhood. I mean, so childhood is something that you want to shake off in the way that you're talking about it as quickly as you possibly can. Addie's sort of obsessions in this film is, is with growing up and being perceived as older, but also being perceived as a woman rather than being perceived as a boy, which she she is often mistaken for as a child. And those things conflicting, just the way that Tatum O'Neill is able to carry all of that is is really quite masterful. And it, it, it's so convincing when she's delivering this dialogue and when she's performing these scenes, we absolutely believe that she is existing within that moment, which I never did um, with Lola Campbell in, in Scrapper. And I, th- I think that ultimately that makes for something more sincerely funny. It's it's a, This is a very funny film in a way that I didn't didn't find Scrapper to be.
2: If you feel it's it a little is a unfair, alien to be like, the, what is arguably the greatest child performance of all time? <laughs> it's like, it doesn't <laughs> clear that
3: path. Well, well we're, we're, <laughs> look, we're, we're comparing the two. This is why we're, why this has been stationed this way. And I think it, um, maybe I just hold too high standards to people. And I, I, don't, I, I just think that these films are trying perhaps to do similar things and to grapple with... Um, with grief and the nature of, of, of getting older and what it's like to lose a maternal figure and, and where sort of these these girls look for alternative parental figures. And I think that this is just vastly superior as, as a cinematic example of exploring that kind of processing to, to the other film that we've been we've been talking about.
2: I mean, Sabina, for you, I mean, Ryan O'Neill in some ways gets a bit lost in the conversation about this, like before he read up. I mean, is, is there something about
0: his performance that works particularly well in this dynamic? I was very interested by the way they established their connection through tricks and traits and money. You know, I was very intrigued by the transactional idea behind their closeness and how they managed to find a way around sentimentality and around the question whether he is or he isn't her dad. And that the shortcut for that was money and accumulating money. And I think that's one of the very few films that deals with it in such a way that it doesn't come off as cynical. And I still don't know how they manage that. It's It still blows my mind because there's such inventiveness in the way that they talk, in the way that they, you know, scam people together. He's such a neurotic character that makes me like him quite a lot. I think I am up for neurotic dads more than destroyed the Chauvin sweetheart dads. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where my allegiance sides. Um, not sure why. As well, that's something to talk to with my therapist <laughs> Again, Yeah, I, I actually think we could maybe double team this therapist because I think we've got yeah. <laughs> <the same problem. laughs> Let's do it. I pour them, pour them. But uh, yeah, I think I think the neurosis he embodies—that is—that has to do with his um, vagrancy, with his nomadism, his ruthlessness. Um, I think that's something that finds a good counterpoint in the relationship. He establishes with Addie and his resistance to it as well like he is by far you know par excellence the fear of commitment guy <laughs> anyway so that was that was interesting to see how it unfolds in a supposedly father-daughter slash accomplice relationship
2: well again I just want to talk about this with you guys all day but we should move on to our kind of little wrap-up of the podcast So one last thing, Savina, what is the non-movie thing that you're going to suggest people seek out this week? What's your recommendation?
0: I have been obsessed with a certain book called Porn. Maybe lots of the listeners, maybe you know it as well, Uh, Polly Barton's book of oral histories about porn. It is something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. And yeah, very, very inspiring read.
2: God, for a second, I thought you were going to say porno, as in the terrible Train Spotting sequel. That
0: I've been <laughs> oh my god! I'm so I, I, th- I, I thought I thought you were just world recommending
3: world. that the the listeners go and watch some porn. I mean, sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ethically sourced porn, definitely do yeah. that. But you can start, start fans is <laughs> meant you
2: can pay the creators themselves. I would, yeah.
0: That is a very good non-movie recommendation too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So this book, so it's looking at the history of pornography. So where are we starting? Are we going back to Vesuvius and like phalluses being carved on walls? (laughs) Or are we like starting with, um, you know, the silent movie era?
0: Yeah, it's quite, what's interesting in this book is that it's structured as conversations so Polly Barton goes off and has conversations with anonymized people of different backgrounds, sexual orientations and gender and everything to to kind of just explore how people talk about porn. And in their conversations, there's a lot of historical things that come up. There's a lot of politics, um, a lot of gender representation, a lot of personal things people share. But basically, it's the idea Coming up to you and asking you, how do you, do you talk about porn with your partner? And how do you do that if you ever do? And what are the reasons you don't? So I think that's a really good prompt to actually help us revisit the preconceptions that we have about porn and our likes and dislikes, pros and cons. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's made up about 20 or more conversations, mostly transcripts, she says, and filtered and edited. So it's really good interview material as well. Yeah. No, I certainly do talk
2: about that with my husband, but I, I do draw the line at talking about those preferences with the podcast listeners. So I'll leave it <laughs> there. Um, Lillian, what about you? What's your non-video recommendation?
3: Sorry. Well, I was going to recommend Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczuk, but I don't want this to turn into an advert from Fitzgeraldo. So I will say that, well, I've been at the Proms all summer, um, at the Royal Albert Hall, and I will recommend those because they have been giving me so much joy. It's, um, it's been such an incredible program this year, um, and I like to go and stand in the arena at the Albert Hall every night and listen to music from all over the world. Um, and it's it's just wonderful. It's also broadcast on Radio Three. So yeah, I recommend going and seeing something. It's like eight pounds to stand in the arena. So yeah, go and try something. There's some. Uh, well, there'll be a few more. It goes on until the 9th of September. So there's plenty of concerts to, to, to check out.
2: Yes. If you, like Lillian, are an enthusiast of music and also have the back that allows you to stand.
3: <laughs> to stand every <laughs> night for three hours. Yes. yes. Normally yes. in heels. I, I normally do it in heels, which in probably annoys 20s. the people standing behind me. but <laughs>
2: If, unlike me, going on a roller coaster didn't make you have to go have physio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Quick, go whilst you can. (laughs) No, Thank you, Lillian. Your, like, enthusiasm for this thing is just, for these things is just so delightful. And and I do hope to, I'll take a couple of Neurofen and I'll come with you. No, please do, please do.
3: People should come with me. I do this on my own. It gets quite (laughs) lonely. that's a bleak note to
2: it <laughs> no. sorry no no that was just, I was thinking should we get into it but actually there's not enough time because you know there was that independent thing recently about how they like, go to uh, the cinema by myself. It's pathetic okay. and actually like fuck those people because I 90% of the time go to the cinema by myself sure. and it's my preferred I'm, way to I'm go to the cinema meeting, but, yeah,
3: but we won't get, we won't into, get into it into
2: because that. we'll just <laughs> it, you'll be here all night so if you've got thoughts on these films, email truththemovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, a love triangle gets complicated in passages. Beloved Manga is adapted into anime in the first slam dunk, and film club will return to complicated romance in Jules and Jim. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Truth the Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Lillian Crawford and Sabina Pekova. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.